0: It's news. These Marines have waited more than a decade to hear. They came to be known as the MARSOC 7, and for a time, several of them thought they might be facing the death penalty for a crime they did not commit. Tonight, exoneration from the very top of the Marine Corps. After 11 long years, finally, exoneration for the MARSOC 7, a group of Marines who were ambushed by the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2007, but then falsely accused of killing innocent women and children. The seven of us. You know it means a lot former marine major fred galvin was the commanding officer that day we spoke with him tonight via skype when you're accused of something this heinous and awful
1: and every every country every religion uh despises the killing of women and ch- innocent women and children it's awful uh, but having that end today after 11 years of that stigma is is incredible.
0: We first covered the story of the Marsock 7 more than two years ago when Galvin and several of his former Fox company Marines were still struggling.
1: When it's the accusations are you know, homicide, 19 counts, uh, a lot of people aren't going to hire somebody like that.
0: Technically, they were exonerated of wrongdoing, but never publicly declared innocent. News outlets were still reporting they had murdered civilians. Finally, this year, their requests were answered with a letter with very important words from the Commandant of the Marine Corps.
1: That we acted with sound military judgment. Uh, That is very, very important.
0: Now, the hope is that those former Marines who haven't been able to find work because of this incident can finally leave the battlefield and the courtrooms behind and move on.
1: Our Marines were having some very, very challenging times with their work and their personal lives. Uh, inability to get hired just due to the stigma of this, and this means so much to our Marines and to allow them to heal and integrate back into society.
0: Now, Galvin is hoping for one more thing. Last year, a new insignia was awarded to members of MARSOC, the Marine Corps' Special Operations Command that the MARSOC-7 would have been eligible for but did not receive. He wants to see them receive it in a public ceremony so the world can see finally they are truly innocent once and for all. And he's asking for the public to once again help contacting their members of Congress to make this happen.
2: podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest for this week's podcast. He is retired Marine Corps Major Fred Galvin and the author of A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambush in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America. Uh, Fred, how's it going? Great, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. Um, You were on the podcast a few years ago. Uh, But we were focusing on the story of the MARSOC 3 with Destiny Dreyer. And um, they made some progress in that situation, uh, but there's still some setbacks, some roadblocks. um, And it's it's quite unfortunate, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that uh, things go the way they should. Hopefully so. Yes, they had their trial in February this year in 2023.
3: <clears throat> the uh, all the serious charges were dropped: the, the manslaughter, the homicide, uh, the conspiracy, and then uh, you know the dereliction of duty. But the Marine Corps did uh, overcharge, and you know here's a general court martial. They found him guilty of. General Order number one disobeying a direct order for drinking in Iraq. And the, the issue is that carries at a general court martial, that type of conviction carries a felony. So a lot of implications as far as weapons ownership and being able to do what a lot of Americans I mean you lose part of your rights as a citizen and for a lot of special operators, recondos, you that's very important to you. It provides a way of life for a lot of folks and Hopefully that can be overturned, but we'll see uh, the the next case on the eighteenth of April here, <clears throat> coming up shortly is the Corman uh, Chief Eric Gilman will be, have his hearing, and uh, hopefully that will be wrapped up. This has gone on for over four years, and it stems from, as we've said in the past, uh, a case in our Iraq, your bill Iraq, where, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Danny Dreher was attacked and uh, defended by his colleague, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Josh Negron, with one punch. That was it. And now it comes down to Chief Eric Gilman. He was also charged with all these things. February last year in 2022, had this case dismissed with prejudice. The Marine Corps came back in and recharged them on an appeal last August. So there is – the. He is still fighting a fight with capital offenses that, uh, as you know, and some people think, well, you know, they haven't uh, pushed that very much before. But those, that Fort Hood shooter, he was charged with homicide. Uh, he's his punishment is the death penalty, and you know they'll get that. Uh, so Chief Eric Gilmott's facing the same charges, and uh, and just you know, two days from when we're recording this, he's going to be, uh, have his time in court again, and the government's going to try to prosecute this. So hopefully, um, you know, they will have leaders that understand, you know, this is a gross overcharge and then they can do what leaders need to do and, and dismiss this, uh, because basically you're giving up in the case of these two Marines, the right of self-defense in the case of the corpsman, he did not just the good Samaritan, but he was, specially trained in uh, trauma care, you know, as a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman. And he has an obligation, uh, just like other medical professionals, take the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm, take care of him. And that's what he did. And he's being charged with capital offenses for doing exactly what he was trained to do. Uh, So this is why, John, we've got problems Uh, In our military, I know the service chiefs to include the Commandant on the Marine Corps has stated just recently to Congress that the issue that we're having with retention and Recruitment is because of a tight labor market obesity Test scores all those things except for admitting any responsibility, such as hey, it's bad leadership Um, And I'm seeing and I still have friends contacting me this morning telling who are in the Marine Corps Uh, Tell me about these stories that, you know, these recruiting commanding officers are being relieved. These are Marine colonels being relieved because they aren't meeting the quotas because people don't want to join the Marine Corps. And I saw this just a year ago, John, when I was living in Hawaii. I I was working for, you know, the Department of Defense. And as you know, people are not they're not going on these long deployments to combat repeatedly anymore. And their wives aren't complaining that they're going on these back-to-back deployments to their every every crotch in the Middle East. It's uh, They're not complaining because they got this great tan or they're facing the, the horrible weather in Hawaii. Uh, that's not the, why they were all wanting to get out. Everyone that I knew over there was wanting to get out the very first day that they were eligible. And that's a big, big problem. You couple that with people not wanting to come in. You couple that with what happened a week ago, as we're speaking right now, with Taiwan being enveloped by the People's Liberation Army and Navy, and 71 Chinese airplanes, uh, going into the Taiwanese sovereign airspace. And at the same time last week in North Korea launching another ballistic missile. Uh, that's all because we're perceived by our adversaries as well. That's a big change. And uh, our military leaders, we need to hold them accountable, our elected officials. Those are, I don't like to call them our leaders because they're not leading, Um, but they need to be held accountable. You need to vote. Uh, Shame on anybody for voting an incumbent in office. I'm not a politician. Uh, To elect people who have ran up this debt, who have destroyed our military, destroyed the morale, and allow this type of chaos to be going on with people who were defending themselves and trying to provide immediate trauma care to somebody who was injured and they're charging them with homicide. That's absurd. And frankly, we as citizens should be ashamed and embarrassed that we aren't doing our jobs and firing all these elected officials. Again, they're not leaders uh, because they're, they're taking money from their Geppettos, the ones pulling their strings. And um, honestly, John, it just makes me sick. Hopefully this ends with some common sense here soon uh, because I've been through that meat grinder when somebody is dragging something on ours didn't our case didn't last over four years like these guys but when they charge you with capital offenses and you have to get attorneys the stress that puts on your families um that's that's something that destroys morale so
2: yeah it, it's really you know i i i've thought about it um you know we we did that podcast focusing on the the 3 situation You know, I know Danny. I know Destiny. Um, uh, You know, talking to them over the years, uh, seeing other cases, uh, military justice system. uh, There was a case, I'm forgetting his name, but he was a SEAL. And um, he was accused of, like, sexually assaulting his girlfriend at the time. And she later said, came out and said that uh, I just, you know... I don't want to misquote her, but I I think she said something to the effect of, uh, "I was upset when I said it, and I, I made it up. It didn't happen." Even though she said that, they still put him through you know this meat grinder, and um, and really like ruined his life and and his career. And I just don't understand what you know what the motivation is for something like this, um, because and especially now with the the internet, with podcasts, with all these mediums to uh get these stories out and 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 talk about these things that are happening uh you know and, and like you said like th- there's so many issues with uh re- retention and keeping people in the service good people uh and then you have these these cases and and you were involved in one and you know we're going to get into that uh where it, it just seems completely unreasonable for, for the kind of charges that are being uh, levied at servicemen and women and uh, you know they, they, it seems like it does not matter what the facts are you know they decided that they're going to charge and, and they're going to pursue it no matter what and I I just cannot make sense of that part it's a good point John the, because these are weapons
3: in this information warfare so they're A lot of times the case that I was in, you know, when there is no proof, but you make these allegations and who's making these allegations? Well, first it was these Afghans. And when you read, I'm not trying to pimp the book, but when you read Appendix three, that's all the Afghan statements that they made to Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Yeah, I'm asking you to read Afghan statements because when you if you want to read something, just read that. Go to Barnes and Noble, pick up a few bad men, read that. And they're so contradictory. And that's what our leaders believed. So, John, I mean, if everybody that you went out and you interviewed all these people in all their stories were completely different. There was no car bomb. The Marines and then the next guy said they, the Marines used hand grenades and slingshots to make it look like there was a car bomb and that the Marines were drunk and that we dismounted from our vehicles and we went door to door sport killing women and children and elderly. Do you think that a Marine leader would honestly believe any of that garbage? I don't believe they did, but it fit their narrative and that's this information warfare that they want to believe this because they're embarrassed or because, and you saw this case That happened in Haditha, and I'm going to go back a little bit in time with this, but these Marines in the Haditha incident, there was uh, a Marine who got killed, and then these Marines in the same squad fought back at a little bit different time, and uh, then Congressman Jack Murtha, who they named a ship after this guy, uh, Congressman Murtha said these Marines killed these innocent Afghan or Iraqi civilians in cold blood. So when you say something like that, and this Jack Murtha was a Marine from Vietnam, you say something that before the facts are collected, before they have their day in court, and there's no accountability. This is where, you know, and this is sad that in America we we talk about and are enamored by the Spartans, oh, they hold them accountable for the words they speak. We should in America too. Why don't we? You know, that's just basic day one stuff. That, hey, if somebody says something that slanders you, that's why <clears throat> the Bible doesn't have a commandment that says, Thou shalt not lie. It says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. So I'm not trying to get theological here, but that's called slander. That's character assassination. That's defamation. There's reasons we have laws out there. To protect us for when somebody defames you. And I'm talking United States Marines. I'm not talking about public figures. You've all, John, you and I have gone to the checkout store and you see the National Choir and <clears throat> you've heard that John Wayne and Jane Fonda were abducted by UFOs. I mean, it's goofy that we have laws that if somebody's a public figure, they can, they literally can legally defame them. But when, you aim a weapon, like in the case of this Navy SEAL, and that means your rights and freedoms can be destroyed and taken away. And, you know, again, that I've gone through this where I drafted 700 resumes that were targeted to specific job openings, using all the words that they had in there and, and working on going, getting a, graduate business degree and doing everything I possibly could to get jobs and was denied repeatedly for 700 job applications before I got my first job post-retirement from the Marine Corps. And I did have a my small business to uh, put my time, effort, and energy in. But th- I'm saying that because these have consequences for those that you professionally destroy. But there's no consequence for the girl that says, hey, he did this. And there's no proof. Well, you. This is where things need to change, and they they constantly call her the victim. But if you don't have any proof, um, it just same thing with these general officers, and I'll name a few of these dirt balls. Uh, general, uh, he's retired. John Nicholson, uh, Lieutenant General Frank Kearney, uh, General Dennis Halick, retired Marine Lieutenant General, uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. You know, you read. Their words, not Fred Galvin's, read the words that they said to the press during an ongoing criminal investigation before the facts were even known what these guys were saying to Congress. And then you go into the courtroom and you hear what these people said under sworn testimony and how it was so contradictory, and none of them were held accountable. They were, I mean, you read this and you're like, these guys perjured themselves in a court of law in the United States and went on to get promoted. And they got these command assignments. Uh, we, we have a problem with that because there is no justice uh, just like what's going on. And people think, well, that was a one. No, I'm talking about a case that's currently ongoing right now in the same command in Marine special operations command with three others, because we've allowed our political, Representatives. Again, I don't like to call them leaders because that's not what they are. We, we put them in there without fully knowing what we're buying. And as Americans, <clears throat> we need to wake up and understand how important our rights to vote are, <clears throat> how that over our lifetime, what we're going to spend more money on more than our house, more than our car is in taxes. And most of those tax dollars, the number one non discretionary spending is on defense. And John, if you had a leak in your roof and you're paying some guy top dollar to go up there and fix it, and it just kept getting worse and worse, you'd fire him. And why don't we do that with our military, again, officials? Let's not call them leaders, uh, because they have mortgaged their souls, they've buckled, and they're doing whatever these politicians want them to do because their base wants to transform our military. And it has, and I could go on stories and I'll save you the time. Uh, but a year ago I was still working for uncle sugar, uh, out there in Hawaii with the Marine Corps. And I could go on and tell you the, the horror stories of this experimentation and how it has failed and how morale sucks so bad that everybody wants to get out of there. And, and they are the numbers last year, the army missed their recruiting goal by 25 percent. The navy changed their maximum age bracket from 39 to 41. You know, the air force, their males and females. I can't quote you the exact percentage, but they they've increased. I think females can have 36 percent body fat just to get in. Uh, I mean, these are youth. The air force, you know, they they want them. You know they they get them as early as they possibly can. If you're a little bit older, they don't like to take them as much. Uh, but uh, you know our standards are lowering constantly, and they say that we don't lower our standards. Well, John, you know good and well in Recon they used to have used to have a GT of 110, and it went down to 105, 100, and now it's waverable to 95. Uh, so we are getting people who and your GT score is just a measure of uh, it's not intellect, but it's how much you can remember when presented information in rapid succession. So it is a measure of, you know, your intellect, if you will say. But it's, and you've seen the physical fitness standards; they keep getting lower. Um, they are not what they used to be. You know, you'll see some of these Marines in uniform, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but let's call a spade a spade, a fact a fact, and um, our military is is going to be called on here soon. And if China takes Taiwan, although we don't have a treaty to defend Taiwan, uh and a standing treaty that exists anymore, I guarantee those billionaires, when you fly into Washington, DC, whether it's into Reagan around the Pentagon, and you look at all those buildings when you're landing, or Dulles when you fly into out by Langley and see all those buildings around the intelligence community or the military Pentagon, Look who's on the boards of Lockheed, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing. Look at all these retired generals and admirals. Uh, they are poised to make fortunes because they're like anybody else in big business. They are getting heavily rewarded in stock options. And when we go to war in Taiwan, and I'm saying when, because this is going to happen. What happened last weekend was not just a, a fluke. They're getting ready to invade And the only way you can dislodge a large-scale force like the People's Liberation Army from an island is by conducting amphibious and airborne operations. We're not just going to sit around and shell it. Um, And that's going to cost countless, tens of thousands of lives. That's going to be very bloody and very expensive, probably bankrupt our country. And America, you have to understand, like I just said with the Navy— They've raised their enlistment rates to 41 years old, and we're probably not going to be able to get a volunteer force to go and fight that to the level that we need to dislodge. And that means that look at family members, nieces, nephews who are 41 years old or younger, who are able-bodied. They're probably there's likely that they could be drafted And go to war over there and you're talking getting onto an island and it's going to be a bloody a bloody scene so we need to wake up uh, We need to restore what we had in the military. It's not completely lost But we've got to fire these leaders who have who've caved in We don't need jellyfish in the Pentagon. We need we need warriors and that's what we're missing right now, John
2: So, you know despite that uh, you know, all these facts that you've laid out and, you know, we've seen things uh, coming out about, you know, dropping standards, um, retention issues, you know, over the last several years. But you still think it's fixable?
3: It is fixable if what I've said happens. And that is that we, the people, need to fire every single—and people are like, oh, January 6th. I'm not talking about— I'm talking about going to the polls, every single one. And if you reach in your pocket, John, and you'll pull out a dollar bill of any denomination, you'll see there's a serial number. We need to fix our voting system. If there's – and people are like, oh, are you one of these weirdos, a conspiracy? No, I'm just – I'm saying a fact, John, that here's the deal is when there's more votes cast than there's voters in the United States, we have a problem. And I'm not trying to go communist on you, but – Old Joey Stalin was the one that said, it's not who casts the votes, it's who counts the votes. And there's where we have a problem in our country, when we have more votes cast than voters. We have a problem, and if if we could put serial numbers on dollar bills, and if we can do sophisticated and complex things, not just like 54 years ago almost – launching and putting a man on the moon. And if you look how complicated that was, how that capsule went back and it lodged back in and it came back to earth and and how now we have SpaceX vertically landing multiple rockets simultaneously. If we could do things like that, we can figure out something as simple as a ballot box, but we got to get that straightened out and we got to fire all these weak leaders who are running up the tab that we can't even pay for. And you have China, China, coercing brazil russia saudi arabia to get off you know the petrodollar to get away from the united states is the you know the global currency this is going to crush us and our way of life and everybody that thinks that hey you know we we have a good life it's that can be taken away that quick and that i'm being dead serious when when people are out there leveraging themselves getting mortgages for a million dollars that they know they can't pay If banks collapse, and we're starting to see the tremors of it right now out here in Northern California and Silicon Valley Bank and many others, uh, we are in a bad situation, and we need to vote these clowns out of office. There are people out there, they may not have uh, every fiber in their body like George Washington, but there's people who are leaders whose hearts are in the right places, who can lead during tough times, and that's what's coming And those leaders in the military don't exist in the general officer and admiral officer ranks. They, they they're too weak. They've been corrupted. Uh, Take for instance, and everybody, you know, genuflects at the beloved general Jim Mattis, just look at his track record with what's been exposed in the national public radio just did a expose on how he covered up, Uh, death with uh, former congressman and former Marine Captain uh, Duncan Hunter, as well as General Conway, the former commandant of the Marine Corps. They covered up a friendly fire death in Fallujah. General Mattis also was on, uh, well, he's a four-star general. He's getting coerced uh, by Elizabeth Holmes. Read into this uh, story. Um, Many people know about Uh, how he was the commanding general of all forces in the Middle East when he was the commander of the U.S. Central Command. And Elizabeth Holmes, you know, was tickling his ear. She was the youngest self-made female billionaire. And guess what? He was telling those in the Pentagon, he was writing emails. This is not my, you know, conjecture. This is Google search Mattis Thoranos. You will you'll be able to read everything you need to know about what went on and how he was telling people we've been at this for a year. This was his email. We've been at this for a year. Tell me what obstacles need to be removed for us to move this forward. So he was trying, and most Americans aren't aren't cool with shoving things in service members' arms uh, on our lads overseas. We're, we're not cool with that, especially before the FDA approves, you know, this and it's experimental throttles. We know what's happened because we fast forward. He didn't get it. He didn't get it, uh, approved to use on our lads over in the Middle East, but he retires and immediately goes to work on their board at Theranos. And then he testifies a year and a half ago to Congress saying, because it was proven that Theranos was a fraud this whole thing melted down and they swindled their investors. And Mattis' words to the U.S. Congress were, I didn't know I had my own money in this. Well, of course you did. That's what all these people do when they – it's called front running. You throw your own money in, you drive up the price, and then you pull it all out and soak the investors. Because when you have the answers to the test, John, and you know it's a total fraud, and he's like, the general didn't know. Well, guess what, Jimmy? you have an obligation to know if you're trying to push this through the Pentagon, when you were wearing four stars and you go work for their board for years and you're swindling and best J- Jimmy Mattis doesn't have a PhD in microbiology or epidemiology. He's not there because of his brains and he, everybody thinks, Oh, he's the warrior scholar. No, he's not. He has no idea what he was doing, but he did know. And he did have those connections because if you retire with four stars on your collar, whether you're in, the Pentagon, or you're down in Tampa at central command, you know what you got? You got a lot of connections and you're going to cash those in. That's called the club. And these companies, whether it's the Ronos or Jimmy Mattis, he's still working for general dynamics. He's on their board. Check it out. Don't take my word. I'm not, uh, I'm not here to, you know, get you to believe anything. Google search it. And I'll tell you what these guys do. You know, they'll pick him up anywhere he wants to be in their private plane and General Dynamics will fly him right into Reagan, and he'll – you don't need a badge if you're a retired 010. Um, you're, you're, that's why they offer them these jobs, because they have access and placement to the Pentagon. They know these members of Congress. They've been dealing dirty business with them for years. Uh, so this is where all these members of Congress, all these senior military members uh, – again, I'm not calling them leaders. They've been corrupted. You have to, and case in point, I'll go back to the MARSOC-3. How many of these members of Congress stood up for these guys? I mean, these are American special operators, active duty right now. This case has been going on for four years, and some have, but the majority haven't. And some of them will do the minimal, but, you know, they, they need to hold themselves responsible. That our members of the military are being demoralized by this chaos created in the Pentagon, uh, by people defending themselves from a 275 pound bodybuilder that violently attacked a black man. And then today's, I mean, doesn't that get headlines? The media is not even covering any of this other than people such as yourself and a few others. It's, it's disgraceful that somebody can be attacked violently, uh, a, a black man, and the media doesn't even want to cover it. it it's just, it's contradictory and it's disgusting that, uh, you know, now he's charged with a felony because he was drinking alcohol and the military is saying, well, he could have pled out at a lower type of a court martial, like a summary court martial or a special court martial pled out, pled out to the charges of homicide, manslaughter. Those are, <laughs> that, that is, those are capital offenses and the Marine Corps does this where they'll lump a bunch of these nasty charges together where nobody wants to defend you. Nobody's going to get in your corner and and speak on your behalf because it sounds so heinous and they'll put all this stuff together. So it's a no win situation. You know, you're they thank God they took it to a general court martial and stood their ground while all these other leaders buckled. Where were the Marine officers? We call ourselves leaders and lead by example. Where were they? in standing up for these marines in this corpsman where have they been for the last four years john it, it just makes me sick
2: yeah i mean you you brought up a a couple of really good points um and you know i'll, I'll say you know the next 10 years or so um the current world order is is going to change up uh, you know how much it changes is, is you know remains to be seen but Uh, you know, China is leading a coalition of, of nations to try and, um, you know, at the very least, weaken American influence around the world. Um, and we do, you're absolutely right. We do need great leaders because this is going to be some uncharted territory that we're heading into. Um, you know, I, I will say that, uh, China has a bunch of, uh, systematic issues in the way they in the way they earn money and uh, the way they do their business um, you know even though their GDP is is growing at a faster rate than America's um, the average person in China makes a lot less than the average person in America and that has to do with the way they they do exports they make a lot of money on exports uh, and and due to that, um, they have laws that allow companies in China to pay people very little. So as a result of that, they don't consume as much. Um, so, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for why the, the dollar is the, the world's reserve currency. Uh, but, you know, aside from having the largest economy in the world and military uh, we also have the most liquidity, so like we can spend the most. Like we 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 have more money to spend than China does. Um, so th- there's a ton of changes that's gonna come. Uh, you know, certain countries, as you mentioned before, are agreeing to trade with China in their currency as opposed to trading uh, in dollars, as that was sort of the standard. You know, post World War II. Uh, so there will be changes. We do need strong leaders, so you are absolutely correct about that. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't know Jim Mattis or anything like that, but I remember when, uh, when Trump was in office and there was talk that he might uh, select Mattis to work for him. Uh, I, I remember the story of ODA 574, Uh, a a Green Green Beret team in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, There was a friendly fire incident where an American airstrike landed on their position. Uh, I think it killed one or two guys and and wounded a bunch of others. And uh, Jim Mattis uh, was about an hour away at Camp Rhino in command of Marines. And uh, they had air assets, they had uh you know medevac capabilities they they had enough to help these green berets who were in distress and um mattis refused to release help uh, until he understood uh you know the situation on the ground and landing zones and things like that uh so that that was a, a thing that i I'd, I'd known about him that was negative and um but then you know of course he uh, his name has become, like, larger than life in many ways, right? Like, you know, there's all these memes and, and uh, you know, sort of positive things about him that that you see as opposed to, like, what the negatives are. Um, okay, so th- let's talk a little bit about uh, your journey in the Marine Corps, and then let's get into your situation, which you detail in your book, um... So like, let's start with uh, where you're from and then what motivated you to join the Marine Corps? Yeah, thanks, John. So originally I'm from the
3: middle of America, uh, there around the Kansas City area, home of our world champion Kansas City Chiefs, right? And uh, so I grew up there south of the city and when my mom, she was a travel planner, she put together these packages, uh, different places around the country and around the world. And on one of them, she took me at around 10 years old to East coast, American revolutionary and civil war battlefields. And uh, just hit me like a massive hammer that my gosh, these guys believed in ending tyranny <clears throat> so much that they were willing to sacrifice you know, the the nasty weather conditions and then fighting a a superior army that was superior in number and the, how they were professionally trained and in their equipment. You know, America didn't have the same type of capabilities, but they stood up. And so I learned that at 10 years old. And that kind of seed placed in my heart and it grew a root. And I didn't, I wasn't one of these fanatics and freaks that started wearing camo around when I was a kid and not that that's crazy, but, um, I always wanted to do that since that age, but I didn't have someone in my family that was, you know, guiding me and providing any mentorship. And I had no knowledge about the military at all. And then when I was in high school, one of my classmates said, Hey, <clears throat> there was a slogan back then in the Marine Corps, uh, still is, but we don't use it that much, but, that the Marines are the first to fight. And so he was telling me that not whispering. He was like shouting that in my ear and he joined the Marine Corps too. His problem is he smoked dope in spring break and, and, uh, <laughs> disqualified himself. <laughs> so, and he discu DQ himself. I had already signed up and I was set to go later in the summer. And the recruiter said, Hey, since this guy, is not gonna go. Can you take his space because he's ready to go? That his space was a week after graduating high school. So so I took a space and went to boot camp in San Diego uh, as an enlisted marine at 17 years old. Went out there uh, and I'll tell you what, you know, going from a small place in the middle of America to you know the the hills, you know, flat train in Kansas to you know, where you have an ocean and mountains. I thought, you know, I was in Nirvana. It was really beautiful. And guess what? You know, drinking age is still 21, but you could go right across the border to Mexico, uh, which we did. And, uh, you could, you could celebrate with your, your buddies and have a good time. And there was plenty, plenty of ladies from all the colleges in San Diego that, uh, willingly went across the border to, uh, meet up with some of the young guys and we just had a great time. Yeah. So, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to tell you a tale of any suffering or shame. It was just, it was a great experience and time in my life. And then all of a sudden we went out to, I was stationed in Camp Pendleton, California. And we went to 29 palms, California for some training in the desert. And that was in that summer of 1990. And as soon as we, uh, wrapped up and were finished the next month. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and taken over. Uh, so we finished up some last minute training, uh, got on ships in uh, San Diego. They actually picked us up in uh, Camp Pendleton uh, on some amphibious platforms. And we went over. Uh, that was actually my first deployment on ship. And it was great. Uh, got to go to, Hawaii and the Philippines and, uh, and then we offloaded in Saudi Arabia and had some limited combat in Kuwait during the liberation of Kuwait and Desert Shield and Desert Storm in 1990, 1991. Um, we stayed there as like a reserve afterwards until May and then there was a, a massive typhoon that caused this massive damage in the country of Bangladesh. Uh, in the Eastern portion of uh, the Indian ocean. And we immediately set sail out of the Persian Gulf to go provide humanitarian assistance during operation sea angel. Uh, so after a couple weeks uh, there, we went to back to the Philippines and Hawaii and home. And it's a good time. I had uh, taken the reconnaissance in dock right before then uh, because I met a buddy of mine in the, the chow hall where we have our little meals in uh, the, the Marine base there at Camp Pendleton. He and I went to high school together, and he was at 1st Recon Battalion. He actually deployed on that deployment um, on the group of ships we were on. So I took the Recon Indoc and passed it, and I kind of got a really bad rap from my company executive officer, who I know it's not politically correct to call people fat, but that's what he was. I guess you <laughs> may want to re it. Call him well-nourished. So he was a well-nourished warrior, and he really resented the fact that you know, I was 20 years old and physical fitness, my whole life at that point was, was really big. It's what I spent time. We didn't have the internet. So all you had time to do in Camp Pendleton, which is a beautiful part of the country, massive hills and ocean is, is run around the mountains and beach and lift weights. And, uh, we had plenty of time for that. And, uh, so I came back and wanted to off that deployment, wanted to go recon again. And, uh, that same well-nourished warrior was doing his damnedest to make sure that that was not a possibility. So I, I went, you know, got off active duty, went to college there, stayed in San Diego and, uh, finished my bachelor's, uh, met a chick because I wanted to go right back in the Marines. My mom was always telling me, you gotta go to college. My Mom and dad didn't go to college. And, uh, so after I finished college, my goal was to go right back in the Marines. And I was a sergeant. They wouldn't let me reenlist due to the Clinton era. They were downsizing the military. So um, I was kind of frantic because I wanted to get back in so bad after I dumped this chick that, you know, was telling me, I'm not going to have anything to do. So I became a stockbroker for two years, was in the reserves doing, um, and I, I enjoyed that a lot. But my heart was really going back in the Marines, which I did, and the easiest route, the after I ran into those obstacles that I couldn't re enlist was to become a officer. So I put a package in and, uh, after a year training in Virginia and the officer programs and becoming an infantry officer, I sent back out to camp Pendleton uh, as an infantry officer, enjoyed that, did another deployment over to the Middle East. Um, and then I started my time in force reconnaissance. So I, I took a, what we call an indoc, which is a, a test similar to the one I took when I was enlisted. Um, and then I ended up going to Okinawa, a unit that used to exist called Fifth Force Reconnaissance. And that was a unit stationed over in Okinawa in the Middle East or the, the Far East. And I'll tell you what, that was like, um, John, I mean, it was— it was beyond the imagination it was like living i'm not trying to embellish or anything but it was like living a dream means literally every month we'd be gone to another country and training you know their elite forces whether it's korea or australia philippines mm-hmm. uh, you name it and it was just one thing after the next it was awesome um uh, going to thailand and training in jungles in mountains uh doing amphib, doing urban operations, uh, high altitude parachuting, uh, close quarter shooting. It was, it was beyond the imagination. And finally, the, the assignments officer, uh, said, Hey, you know, you've, you've been in Okinawa too long. He actually let me stay over there for, sign up for a fourth year. Um, but then he, he took that away, which is a, a dirty, dirty game he played on me. I'm not going to cry about it, but, He uh, said, you got to go. He offered me only two choices. One was headquarters Marine Corps in the Pentagon. The other was a little small unit, aviation unit out in Yuma, Arizona, which I was pretty disgruntled. Like these are two really bad choices. If I'm our platoon, John was all single warriors. Um, My platoon sergeant was the only one that was married and he didn't, he recruited all the recon Marines in the teams to be single. And that's why we were just going country to country. And it was just incredible. Uh, For three years, it was amazing. So anyway, I got my extension pulled by the monitor. They sent me to Yuma, Arizona, which is where the Marine Corps has their equivalent of top gun. Uh, So the Marines don't do, just do air to air. They do air to air and air to ground. And I was the reconnaissance officer who would bring in reconnaissance units and coordinate with infantry and reconnaissance units to control the aviation, whether it's the helicopters that will fly the hello, raid force to the assault or control the aviation assets. So usually there'd be two of us. One guy would control the attack helicopters and another guy like me would control the attack jets. And, uh, we'd switch off on different missions, but it's a six week course. I learned a lot, although, you know, being in Okinawa, that's a man ranch and going to Yuma, Arizona, it's another man ranch. Uh, so I was, <clears throat> I was kind of disappointed right when I got there, which was August, 2001 and the war started. I mean, we got attacked, I should say the very next month. And here I'm at, uh an aviation permanent instructor command and I was trying to get out of there. Like I didn't want to be there in the first place. And then I was like, man, I'm permanent personnel. They won't let me out of here. But I did get early paroled at 15 months, uh, left Yuma to go to camp Pendleton, California again, uh, and became a platoon commander, force recon platoon commander again with first force recon company stationed there in camp Pendleton. And we did, a workup and deployment to Iraq. We were taking down a bunch of ships before we got into Iraq. It's called visit board, search and seizure. Uh, they were bringing contraband that was providing funds for the war. Uh, so we did 36 of these uh, ship seizures in the North Ra- Northern Arabian Gulf, Gulf of Oman, Gulf of Aden. And uh, then we went into Southern Iraq. Uh, took over an area from the British for a period of time, and then got back on the ships, and went back to Camp Pendleton, and then we did another flyover to Western Iraq <clears throat> to 2005, and that's when it was the insurgency was at its highest, very very violent, a lot of foreign fighters coming in, very sophisticated, and uh, we really we took the re- you know, regulator off and, and went as moved as fast as we can. Uh, those details are in the book, a few bad men is really, really, uh, unprecedented deployment as far as the number of total missions, uh, completed. After that, they stood up MARSOC and they moved me from camp Pendleton to camp Lejeune, um, to become the commanding officer, of the first Marine special operations company we deployed. 11 months later on ships, uh, to go, I'm skipping a lot of the politics stuff that was going on because the Marine Corps, obviously you're reading a few bad men, which I'm teasing here, they didn't want this, you know, arranged marriage. They didn't want this love child that the Marine Corps and the special operations command was forced to come together by then secretary of defense, the late Dr. Donald Rumsfeld, who, directed all of the services to increase their capacity for special operations and the Marine Corps kind of appeased that for a little bit by saying, oh, we'll, we'll send a couple officers to be liaisons at the Special Operations Command down in Tampa. And they did that. And that's not what met the intentions of Dr. Rumsfeld. So he ordered them and they, okay, we'll, now, sir, we'll, provide this proof of concept we have to make sure if our reconnaissance Marines can even play at the level that seals and green brays can we have to let's do a deliberate you know proof of concept so they did a two-year proof of concept which stretched into three years which some I'm sure were hedging their bets thinking that Bush 43 would be just like his father and be a one-term president which he Bush jr was re-elected and he kept Dr. Rumsfeld as his secretary of defense. And Rumsfeld then ordered, Marine Corps, you will, you shall create a component in the U.S. Special Operations Command. So at that point is when, like on no notice, I was told, you have nine days, Fred, to get from Camp Pendleton to Camp Lejeune, drive across the country and check in, and you're going to be the first commanding officer. So uh, along the way, I stopped out. At Nellis Air Force Base, and this is detailed in the book. Uh, I wanted to get together with uh, the Air Force's Unmanned Aviation uh, Vehicles Center of Excellence, their drones. Uh, then I went from uh, talking to those folks in Vegas out there at Nellis Air Force Base, went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky to talk to uh, the 160th, the Army's Aviation Special Operations Regiment, and then uh, went down to Herbert Field. Florida, talk to Air Force Special Operations, and then talk to uh, a unit in Fort Bragg uh, before checking in. So those nine days went quickly. I was trying to build those relationships. And then we started a very, very aggressive workup, working with all these various units in the different branches of service in the U.S. Armed Services. Um, we had interoperability training with all of them past all these uh, certification exercises with glowing reviews. And some people, oddly, John, were, were not excited about it, that these Marines came in and basically shot the lights out and and did really well and you know were, were competing for assets. Because one of the things when I was there in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which isn't just the home of their Special Operations Aviation Regiment, it's the home of the 5th Special Forces Group, the Green Bray equivalent to a regiment, and he said uh, their their group commanding officer, the colonel, was telling me, he's like, hey, don't waste your time talking to the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. They used to have pieces that would support each one of the Green Braid groups, but they've taken them all back, and now they just support SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force. So he's like, stop wasting your time. They're not going to support you. And I believe because we were the the newest Shiny Object and Special Operations Command, the 160th was interested and eager and they they supported us. And that made a lot of the Green Berets upset. And that later came to uh, impact us when we were in Afghanistan working for an Army colonel,
2: Special Operations, Green Beret. Uh. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor for Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling four patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good-for-25-years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy water resistant and stack easily they have different delicious breakfast lunch and dinners you can make these meals in less than 20 minutes just add boiling water simmer and serve and right now you can go to fourpatriots.com and use the code recon to get 10 percent off your first purchase on anything in the store including this three-month survival kit you'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order Plus, free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today.
3: And they had all these. Aviation assets sitting on the runway right there where we were signed in Jalalabad when we got into Afghanistan a year later in February 2007 a year after we had formed up and um, they approved our very first mission to go and do a, a visual reconnaissance of the Torbor Mountains where we were signed to go operate in which that colonel knew that there was no activity in there because we the United States funded to build this the first paved road in Afghanistan uh, connected to the capitals. Uh, of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so this was a high speed road that people would use not just to drive, but to export opium and poppy and import foreign fighters from their training sanctuary right there in Pakistan, where we couldn't go into, but um, that's where basically it was their finishing school. So you get fully radicalized in this training sanctuary and they'd pay the border guards right there at the Torkin gate at this, paved road to access point border checkpoint and come right across in the first town inside Afghanistan was this place called Badi co. and we had all kinds of reports I'll say that uh, there was four suicide bombers in there planning an attack uh, a larger coordinated attack against the American forces and there was a US Army military police platoon that was based right there on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan the uh, they call it the Torkham Gate. And so uh, they'd been there for over a year. Uh, we had just gotten in. Um, and as we finished our coordination with that Army military police platoon, we we left early from their base right on the Afghan-Pakistan border. The vehicles looked pretty much like, you know, the Army Humvees. And as we rolled into that town, it looked totally different, this body co than when we passed through earlier, completely different. And this time there was utter absence. There'd been a mass exodus of women and children. It was only fighting age males that were lined up on both sides of the road, like a parade. So pattern of life, complete shift in the baseline. And as I was saying on the radio, watch out. And as soon as I said that a car bomb detonated right in front of our second vehicle, Then we started getting shot at on the left side of the road. Then the right side, we started getting sniper fire. A vehicle was dragged across the road there, blocking us in a massive mob swarmed and headed straight out. This was at 9.03 in the morning, John. So it was broad daylight. There was no fog of war. And so this rumor that started with the, in this Afghan controlled town. I mean, basically what I described this town, John, is a logistics node. Think like an Amazon fulfillment center. So the first place across the border is this big distribution center where they, all the foreign fighters, once they've been fully trained in Pakistan, come over, they meet up with their handlers for those little, let's call it like Amazon trucks. I, I don't work for Amazon. I'm not trying to embarrass them, but they give the last mile of service, taking these guys to get their jihad on in Kabul and Kandahar and places unknown across Afghanistan and they didn't like Americans fooling around in that town. So to keep them out of there, they imported all these suicide bombers, which are very unpredictable. And these suicide bombers, this is a little bit later in the evolutionary cycle. They wouldn't just detonate themselves with high explosives. They were putting a lot of fuel and shrapnel, uh, in, in their car bombs. So when, and I know some of your listeners and yourself, you've, You've seen and experienced some of these, but when in a a soldier screams in agony, and some of this is described in the book, a few bad men, you know, the psychological trauma of hearing somebody scream uh, from a severe burn that does a lot in your brain, and it uh, creates people to not want to leave the base and conduct these combat operations. So, this was effective. The army was doing very minimal. As far as their patrols, they're riding the clock out. Not to, I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but it is what it is. Our reaction was a little bit different, John. We didn't, uh, the army's SOP when we were on that base doing our coordination right there at the Torquem gate, it is what I was described in that book. They were, they were calling out their commands contact, right? They're doing immediate action drills, which at first I was like, Oh good. They're doing some rehearsals for, preparing for combat but this ridiculous thing john is they were doing it in broad daylight and they're surrounded right there this is the kyber pass So it's the most formidable train in the world you have mountains on all sides so you're here in this little valley and what do you have on those mountains you have observers observing and reporting what's going on they know how you're going to react and they know when you're going to leave so uh so they were seeing them rehearse these immediate action drills which the army was saying contact front and they'd all duck down inside the turrets, of their vehicle and the drive, drive, drive. So they're rehearsing in front of the enemy on these hills to basically duck and run. Uh, our procedures were different. I'm not boasting. I'm just stating a fact that we did what we were trained to do. And it was demonstrated that day when we were attacked at what likely the enemy thought was an army patrol. We stopped, moved into our herringbone formation, and violently returned fire and killed the jihadists, except for one that dove out of the vehicle in this Toyota Prado on the left side of the road. And then we were engaged on the right side of the road by dismounted formations that were bounding. You know, some would be providing suppressive fire while the others would be rushing towards us in this dry riverbed. Well, we made quick work of them because we were on this road that was elevated from that riverbed and it was real easy, like ducks in a barrel, just mowing them down uh, in broad daylight. Um, and I'm talking a dry riverbed. Some people are like, well, didn't you shoot some civilians in the meantime? No. I don't know too many civilians that decided to chill out in the middle of a dry riverbed. And this other vehicle that was on the south side of the road that hit us first, when they attacked us, they are driving down an unimproved trail. This was not like us shooting up a bazaar. And none of us dismounted from our vehicle. So this whole story that was made up in this Taliban-controlled village that the Marines dismounted, that we were drunk. They said we were drunk, John. And then went door to door. I don't know how many – I'm not saying people didn't ever drink in Afghanistan. They didn't in my company. <clears throat> but I don't know how many people do prep for combat for a patrol that you're leaving right around 6 in the morning by getting drunk beforehand. Uh, that or, it's, it's absurd that myself, another officer, yeah, had senior – enlisted leaders, our most seasoned force recon Marines in the Marine Corps on that patrol. And you think that force reconnaissance Marines go out on a patrol drunk. It's, a again, the Marine senior commanders, like I described, who didn't want this arranged marriage. They didn't want this love child that was a byproduct of the Marine Corps and the Special Operations Command. They didn't want our Marine Special Operations Task Force to form and deploy. Here was an opportunity to destroy it. And they didn't want this favored son. And so they let this false narrative, this canard to take a root. And they knew what the truth was. When you read appendix three and a few bad men, you read all these lies that it, it's just, you have to be a complete moron and you read this stuff and like, these are their own work. So everything in the last half of that book is what people told criminal investigators they told – they voluntarily told news reporters or they said under oath in a court of law in the United States. And some of it was Afghan testimony from an American base. These were known terrorists that were looked up, proven to be terrorists, that we paid the equivalent of four years average Afghan salary to for multiple that were allegedly killed – innocent civilians allegedly killed in their families. Uh, and two in particular you know, were, were known and proven That we And that's, you know, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution prohibits that, you know, anyone from aiding and abetting our our enemies. And that's what happens. Uh, You know, these leaders said they did their due diligence, leaders like John Nicholson, who that was a lie, whether it was a crime of his omission or he knew it and he lied. But he went on, not just to get promoted from colonel to one star, but all the way up to four star general. He's now... On the board of Lockheed Martin is the chief executive officer, or I'm sorry, the chief executive for Middle East operations, where he remarried, uh, dumped his old wife, married this hotshot attorney from Canada, and now he's moved, living over in Abu Dhabi with his uh, new wife, uh, working for the largest defense contractor in the world, Lockheed Martin. Uh, So yeah, fact check. I want all your listeners to fact check every word I say, Uh, make sure that I'm not you know, pulling your strings. And this is the type of corruption that we have. Uh, Not a single military leader has done anything to right this wrong. And they wonder why we don't have people that want to sign up in the military. I had a Colonel. She was a former commanding officer. She was relieved of command of recruiting last year. She said two others had been colonels. These are the highest rank we have out there actually in the recruiting pipeline besides the general, you know, who's not really a recruiter, but the people in charge down down there, I mean, three have been relieved in a year because they don't want our product. They don't want to join the Marine Corps. And why do they not want to join John? Because, you know, the Marine Corps, not in my case, but in a lot of, it's a family business. You have an uncle, somebody that, and people just aren't saying, and that's how we regenerate our force is, uncle John told, you know, young Billy that hey, you you know, the Marine Corps is pretty good. Well, they're not doing that anymore. They're seeing this chaos that goes on and how the leaders don't have their backs and won't stand up for them. If something becomes questionable, especially in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they're like, Hey, we've lost our ways. And that's where we're at right now, John. So, um, I won't bore you, but I'm just going to tease the story a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we were sent back from Afghanistan because the Afghans did this massive rioting. They put a lot of pressure on the governor of the Nangahar province there in Jalalabad. After the rioting, they he went up to President Hamid Karzai, then uh, the president of Afghanistan, who put pressure on these generals and that army U.S. Army general. Of course, he buckled. They kicked us out before an investigation was complete. So you pretty much figure how that investigation ended. And uh, they said, we just slaughtered this village, murdering 19 and wounding 50 innocent Afghan civilians, is what they alleged. And a year later, they put a gag order on myself and the other co-defendant that went to trial. This was Jim Mattis. On 24 October 2007, he puts a... "Quote unquote," a protective order, prohibiting it as a punitive, so if we said anything, we'd be punished. If our attorney, even our civilian defense attorneys, if they said anything, it says they would send a letter to their state's bar, uh, basically a threat to disbar them, and so the oath that General Mattis swore to defend includes swearing to defend the Constitution, which in there, First Amendment, is the freedom of speech, and you can say, well, You don't have all your freedoms when you're in the military, but you should have your freedom to say the truth, even if that's to the press to defend yourself. Uh, But he wanted to make sure and he took that away from myself and the other co-defendant. We we went into what was the longest trial in Marine Corps history. Started on the 7th, ended on the 29th of January 2008, held in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, as you see from the movie, a few good men, they wear the service uniform when you're in a court. I'm not talking about a non judicial punishment standing in front of your commanding officer in your utilities, but they dragged us in there in your utilities. They definitely didn't want us looking like uh, official professional Marines in our service uniforms, which every other Marine that goes into a court, a court. I'm not talking about, again, not a non judicial punishment or an Article 32. We went to a court in our utility uniforms. Uh, the press was there, the press, and this is unprecedented, John. This is why I've taken the last four plus years to defend these two Marine gunnery sergeants and Navy corpsmen, because what the Marine Corps did is they went off the rails. They continually ordered that the press be removed from the, this is in the book, few bad It's, I mean, the Marine Corps tried to kick me out. They tried to send me to jail for the rest of my life and they tried, they tried me again. And as my defense attorney said, the conviction rate in the Marine Corps, if you go into court, is 96%. The next highest in the world is 92% at the People's Republic of China, not necessarily known for the best civil rights or human rights. And uh, so the Marine Corps definitely wanted to get rid of me. And if they found that a word of what I put in that book, which I sent to the Pentagon before it was published – went fully through their office of pre-publication security review. They first took, you know, three times as long as they said they would originally take, then nine times as long. Uh, They definitely didn't want this out. They, they stalled in allowing the courtroom transcripts for 11 years until we threatened to take them to federal court, have that declassified, but why they were continually moving the media out of the courtroom and why they classified a single word of what I just described in that gun battle was because it embarrassed people in the military. You have what's called the security classification guide, and it prohibits anyone from classifying anything for the purpose of saving someone from embarrassment. And that's exactly when you read the book, a few bad men, and you're like, there's nothing in here classified. Why they, why did they move the media out constantly? Every day for three and a half weeks, the longest trial Marine Corps history. And then why did they classify the transcripts and Fred had to fight for 11 years to get this declassified? That's called censor And every American. I don't care whether you like the Kansas City Chiefs or you like the, you know, San Francisco 49ers or Philadelphia Eagles or whatever religion, race, creed, color, whatever you believe you should. The things we should hold near and dear to our heart. Is that we all agree that the freedom of speech is important, that we shouldn't have that taken away, especially from our service members who are on trial. And, John, I'm not talking about Jason Bourne's knock list or location of submarines at sea. I'm talking about a gun battle that where people organized a complex ambush and blew us up and shot at us on both sides of the road. Sniper fire coming at us, a mob, an obstacle, and we did a counterattack. We're not talking – satellites in orbit or any any of that. I'm just saying basic day one kind of infantry stuff. And yeah. Where are the leaders right now standing up and answering the questions of why they said what they said either to the press? Once it all the few bad men explains it's not my words. That last half of the book is just a dialogue between different attorneys and witnesses. Over four dozen witnesses were close to it. Uh, About 45 witnesses came in and testified. Where is the accountability? The Marine Corps talks about accountability. The assistant commandant of the Marine Corps talks about we have these standards. You know, the ribbons are away from the shooting badge, an eighth of an inch. And it's we're precise. And we have to have this, you know, non-compromising, non-conforming standard. Okay. Only stand up and answer Why Jim Mattis gagged us and put a a gag order against us and why the convening authority continually moved the media out of that courtroom for three and a half weeks and why at the end of this, you waited four months. This is also unprecedented in American military history. You waited four months to adjudicate this case and you used non-legal terms saying that we acted appropriately. You didn't use a legal term like we were innocent. guilty or the case was dismissed. Those are legal terms. So the press just continued to destroy us and dogpile on us doing these drive-bys for years and years and years. That's why I couldn't get a job. The professional destruction that happened to us and it's going to happen to these three as soon as they get out is what Americans, this should hit a nerve in your body saying, this is wrong. And I'm going to contact I gonna go on www.congress.gov forward slash members, and I'm going to contact my member of Congress. And if he has the guts or she even answers my phone call, I'm going to demand that they do something or I'm going to vote against them. That's what they need to hear from you, the citizens, that we're not going to tolerate this tyranny anymore for these people serving our country that have no voice. They just get railroaded for doing their job. we John, we fought our way out of an ambush. We didn't kill any civilians at all. I mean, I took a polygraph. I was on the patrol. It was broad daylight. three in the morning is when it started. We stopped. We stopped. We returned fire. And I had a view of the entire convoy. Where we were, we stopped for five minutes. We returned fire. We called it in. I called it in. and um, We drove off. And... We came back and I was immediately telling the my higher headquarters exactly what happened. I took a polygraph voluntarily showed no deception indicated relative question. Number one, did I order any civ- Marines to kill civilians? No relevant question two: Did I see any civilians killed again? We stopped at nine Oh three in the morning on the road, where people were shooting at us and we shot at them, we stopped for five minutes. I had a position where I could see everything, everything that was going on in front of the entire convoy. There was no deception indicated. General Mattis had that. He had my polygraph. He had the sworn statements of every American on that patrol. They all said the same thing. And you know what, John? He that's when he sent also unprecedented American history he sent 45 criminal investigators and four prosecuting attorneys, never had this kind of dogpiling ever happened before and never has it happened since. On the seven of us who were originally accused, then it boiled down to two of us that went on trial. But seven to one odds. He sent 49 Maldunas to dogpile the seven of us. And I'll tell you, it had consequences. My co-defendant on trial, he ended up getting cancer, had some serious Surgery, radiation, barely made it, but he's alive today. Thank God. He's still serving. Went back to Afghanistan, fought. Um, one of the young other Marines, he, you know, fought back. You know, he's still serving right now. Uh, we all, except for one, uh, who did immediately medically retired due to a life-threatening illness. Another one. This had its consequences. Three out of the four of us who were married got divorced. Uh, This really destroyed people's lives, their finances, their families, relationships, professional careers, post military careers with no accountability from these general officers whatsoever. A few bad men. It's available on Amazon, hardback, Kindle, Audible. It's a book that every American needs to read, listen to and understand. And uh, like I described my early childhood and life, that's described in there. That's not controversial. The rest of the half of the book is sworn testimony, the dialogues. This isn't, you know, paraphrase and clip here or there. This is a ongoing dialogue of what people said in that courtroom, which was cl- no reason to be classified. Uh, but it's what I fought for 11 years. So the American public, you, the citizens that are paying for this defense system, that's that's not effective, that people right now. You look at what's happened in the last year and a half since we fumbled the football and rolled out of Afghanistan, an embarrassing retreat. You look at what's happened. Last year, North Korea launched 36 ballistic missiles. Russia invaded Ukraine. China has been increasing the frequency and scope <clears throat> of their amphibious exercises to include last weekend where they enveloped Taiwan. And they're going to have what they believe is this peaceful. That's not a peaceful reunification. When you fly 71 warplanes in their sovereign airspace and you envelop their country, you're you're planning for a war. And that's going to drag us in there. And there's more of these generals and admirals that are more than willing to let this war go on. And just think what that's going to happen to your families who will be fighting that war, to your finances, which will – there's going to be consequences. Like you said, John, yes, while we were horsing around the Middle East for 20 years, China went around with their One Belt, One Road initiative. It's all road leads to Beijing. And they signed 140 signatures. So all these com- countries are now basically client states of the People's Republic of China. And those terms and conditions, I'll just say, I mean, read those deals. It's. it's Al Capone couldn't even broker such a good deal. But basically, the terms and conditions tied into all their natural resources. Yeah, they these puppet states now. They've got these high-speed rails, and these airports paid for by, by Beijing. Uh, but they're, you know, they're now obedient, and they, all these resources that they depend on, that we depend on. Uh, and you're right. You know, we have this. China has some issues. The only thing that will keep them. Considering this are two things. One is that if their trade, their exports go down because they go have a global war, uh, that will send a lot of people in China who are right at the poverty limit. They will send them into starvation, potential rioting, Like we saw last year in China, when they tried to anchor everybody down and stop them from working, that was a serious threat. And when I did my residency in China, They said the number one concern for the people and who are party members in China is preservation of the party. And they don't want a Tiananmen square on a grand scale. Uh, That's, that's what's in the back of their head is losing power uh, because you don't just get thrown out of office. That would, that would be very bloody uh, situation. But uh, yeah, thanks to, you know, information warfare from generals like our general Mattis, uh, and you're dead on right. I've heard that story uh, firsthand about when he was the commanding general as a one star in Afghanistan at, at the Kandahar airfield with commanding officer at Task Force 58. And he did not release medevac aircraft to save the lives of Americans that needed it. He had the assets which just sat there on the runway. America, you got to do some due diligence. Our military, the lives of those sons and daughters of Americans. They're important. Uh, that's Those are people that signed up, not just because they're patriotic, but they're willing to fight and, if needed, die, and they need to be led by competent, uncompromised commanders. We don't have that right now. This is a serious situation, and it's what we pay more in our tax dollars. More of what you spend over your lifetime will go to taxes than anything else, unless you're like some multi-billionaire and you're creating, you know, real estate, but the average American, your money's going to go to taxes over your life. And most of those tax dollars go to fund this military and it's not working right now. We have just been fleeced and soaked. And a lot of these retired four star generals and admirals are going to get filthy rich when their stock options go through the roof. Once, I mean, I'll do a correlation, John, if we wanted to take cuba is there any nation that could stop us from pushing less than 100 miles off the shore of florida no if we wanted to do it today it could be done and nobody could stop us and if china wanted to push less than 100 miles 96 miles across the straits of taiwan today just like they did the last weekend could anybody stop them the answer is no and nobody even tried last weekend and that's just another data point that emboldens Xi Jinping to realize like America's weak and they're never going to stop us. Why not do it now? And just like we saw, this is going to, you saw just over 75 years ago uh, on December 7th, it just didn't happen in Pearl Harbor, but on the other side of the international dateline, Japan rolled most of the far East and China, what's going to stop them. And it's a, they're going to roll up everything. Uh, and they have the military to back them to do it. Uh, so yeah, a lot of changes are going to likely occur in the world. We have to be prepared for this. I'm not an alarmist and a fear monger. I'm just saying you can't bury your head in the sand and ignore what's the facts that are hidden right in front of our face. These generals stop genuflecting to them. You, you think they're in people get so enamored by them, uh, but they need to be held accountable. Yes, they have a golden tongue, and they're functionally corrupt, and they sound so good, but be aware of people who lie to the taxpayers. we have to hold them accountable but thanks uh, and uh any
2: questions you have I'll be happy to answer John yeah, so just to, yeah, so just to, uh, circle, uh, back. circle back oh, I'm, I'm hearing myself and your mic, okay, I think it went away all right um so just to circle back um. For the audience, Um, so uh, Marsoc is the Marine Special Operations Command. Uh, The Marine Corps, the the Force Reconnaissance Marines were, I think the term is like special operations capable, uh, but were not considered special operations. Uh, They were considered, uh, you know, or they were rather a part of the Marine Corps, uh, as opposed to uh, having. A group of Marines inside SOCOM, the Special Operations Command, and so that's kind of how um, or why rather uh, the MARSOC was stood up because all the other branches had uh, a special operations component, um, but the Marine Corps is kind of unique in that, uh, you know, it was just its its own thing, and 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 um, you know uh, you know an elite you know, combat, uh, command. So, you know, you, uh, you were there for the creation of it. Uh, and then, you know, what you spoke about going to different, uh, states to different, and talking to different commands, uh, you know, that's a very significant part of the story of Marsak. Um, so I just wanted the, the, the listeners to understand that, um, and then so just to, to circle back a little bit on your, your case, um, or, or rather, what happened to you afterwards? Um, so you guys were pulled from Afghanistan, and then were you kind of just, uh, you know, sent somewhere and, and, and sort of relieved of duty while you were waiting, awaiting trial? Or like, how did that work?
3: Yes, those are good questions. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I would like to elaborate on each of them. First, you mentioned, so the Marine Corps always considered itself an elite force. Um, and in 1987, when they stood up the Special Operations Command, the Marine Corps was the only one that did not contribute any forces. The Army sent their Green Berets and Rangers. Air Force sent their Pararescue rescue and combat controllers. The Navy sent their, SEALs, the Marine Corps didn't want to in business wise it's smart. If I'm going to pay for the beer, I'm going to drink the beer. So they don't want to man train and equip all these elite forces for some army colonel to utilize and they don't have the best. And that's exactly what happened with us is they man trained and they, they have to pay the bill and the army colonel over there got to drink the beer and But whether you're the Army Green Bray Colonel or, you know, you're the Marine Corps, now there's this favored son. For those that Judeo-Christians, you know, it's like the story of Joseph. You know, when one son gets to wear this cloak of many colors and everybody's looking at him like, you know, why does he think he's so special? And, you know, they they take that personally and they, they resent it. It's insulting. Smack in the face. It's like you bring in your girlfriend home to meet your wife. You dethroned her. And now there's going to be some consequences to that. So the Marine Corps didn't want this. The, in you spell the Special Operations Command in the United States, our Special Operations Command is spelled A R M Y. So, you know, in the Naval Special Warfare, there's 7,000 SEALs and Special Boat Operators and support. The Green Brazen Rangers, there's 25,000. Uh, the Marines, you know, we're just under 3,000. So we're the much, much smaller uh, overall service and our contribution to the Special Operations Command. But the Marine Corps took this, Marine Corps is a very self-righteous organization, John, and they took this the same way they did in 1942 when they stood up the Marine Raiders of World War II. And two years later, so President Roosevelt, I know I'm going back and jump around, but I'll converge from this divergence. So Winston Churchill founded a, he had the British Royal Marines and he wanted a commando force that could go behind German lines. So he developed the British Royal Marine commandos and they were selected and trained up in the Scottish Highlands. And so president Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted the same thing and he created And the Marine Corps refused and they didn't want to even call them commandos like the British Royal Marines. So they call them Raiders. And even while FDR was still the sitting president in 1944, the new commandant came in, and General Vandergriff said with a stroke of pen, said it is not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite within an elite, and disbanded them with the same commander-in-chief at the helm. That's how much the Marine Corps resents having, you know, some perceived elite within an elite, because they're all elite. And you're right, the Marine Corps normally deploys on ships and when we'd go on ships is force recon Marines. Like I described in earlier part of this podcast, um, I did several of those deployments as a force recon platoon commander on ship. And they say we have, it was the Marine expeditionary unit was the type of unit it is. And they'd have say SOC special operations capable. So because we didn't have forces assigned to the special operations command, but we had forces, that had special operations capabilities. We could take down ships at sea, like Navy SEALs. We could do deep reconnaissance, like the Army Green Berets. We could do close quarter battles and seize these specialized targets like the Army Rangers. We could do all these different missions. And to me, that's why we didn't even need this proof of concept. That was just a way to slow roll Congress and the President of the United States' intention to create what they wanted. Uh, So they did say, you know, some people joke about it, that we knocked the socks. the special operations capabilities. When we'd go out on ships, we'd train and we'd be evaluated and we'd be certified as having this special operations capability. And that came from the force reconnaissance platoon, like I described when I was a platoon commander, both in Okinawa and in Camp Pendleton with different force recon units. That's what brought that special operations capability. It was not... The Marine Corps, the Marine Corps had different aviation units and intelligence units that would provide enable enablement capabilities, Uh, but we'd be the ones that go in and provide that special operations uh, finishing mission. So when we started in the special operations command, yeah, there was a lot of people that that didn't want us. And that's what led to those military leaders Again, I catch it myself. Let's call them senior officials. Let's not call them leaders. Uh, led them to the idea that just like with the story of Joseph in the Bible, we'll get rid of these guys. Let's put them in a well or let's sell them. Let's let's find some way to scuttle this whole operation. And I saw that when I was at Marsoc. And from the very beginning, you know, the general was like, hey, we'll just work out of this existing building or with some trailers. Let's not do any permanent settlement let's do no have no plans for military construction i was told very clearly and it's written in the book when i asked my boss i said hey there was only 300 force recon platoons there are force recon marines so we had more platoons and more authorized strength than that but we would not water down our our standards in force recon so although there were boat space there was existing space for more than 300 we only on average day in the marine corps used to have 300 force recon marines in those platoons on the east coast west coast and okinawa and then we formed this force of 3000 and i said hey boss i was telling the operations officer for the entire marine special operations command i said we're we are going to need a greater quantity and so since we are going to need more weapons and optics why don't we get what the special operations command already has because when we're forming this unit, we have basically have a blank check and we just have to identify what our requirement is by quantity and type of material. And they just decided like he directly told me and it's factually stated in the book, hundred percent accurate that everything you need is in the armory at second force reconnaissance company, which he had just given up command of. And that's a unit on the East coast that I went to as we evolved and stood up the Marine Special Operations Command. So there was no plan. It was a direct, you know, order given to me that, you know, we'll use what we have and that's it because, you know, they don't want to put down roots just like with the Marines in 1942 to 1944. Hopefully, you know, this experiment would be over as soon as the Bush administration on its second term ends and we'll go back and scuttle this whole thing. That's where we're keeping people in trailers and we're not going to have any plans for anything permanent. Uh, so, you know, the ambush we were in and the Afghans sensationalizing that with their information warfare led the Army Green Bay Colonel General Francis Kearney. who's now retired, living in the state of Montana. Um, and, you know, people need to know. That you definitely should read this book and see what he said voluntarily to the press during an ongoing criminal investigation. Here's a military, again, I'll call him an official, who who slandered and defamed, you know, that's defamation. Got away with it, and then even after the case was over in a court of law, and they said they used these milly mouth weak words, saying that we acted appropriately according to the rules of engagements and tactics, techniques, and procedure that was the outcome of the case. He went around the country to include, when he was speaking, he was a member of this West Point, they have Thayer Leadership Development Group, and he was speaking on behalf of Thayer Leadership Development Group down in Fort Benning, Georgia, years after our case had been adjudicated, and talking about how this damaged his career. So he got promoted from two-star to three-star, retired as a Vice commander of the Special Operations Command down in Tampa, Florida, where he spent the last several years of his career uh, soaking up the rays down there while people were fighting. And he said how this destroyed his career because he retired. He got promoted and retired as a three-star general. And he was the one that went to the press multiple times in the Washington Post. Read the book, A Few Bad Men. This is his own words. It's incontrovertible. It's a fact. It's what he said. And, you know, he gets away and talks to a crowd and saying a crowd of officers saying he was the only one that would hold us accountable. Uh, he's just trying to perpetuate this lie that was proven in a court of law that we were that we didn't kill any civilians. Uh, so you have people that were promoted. You read the last, last chapter of the book and you see all these people. They got promoted uh, that professionally destroyed us and this had serious, serious consequences. You know, I look at all these other people that, you know, retired and went straight out and I talk to them every day, you know, I can't talk about Tesla, but I, I work at Tesla and I, I see all these veterans and they had these great careers. and Now I'm able to participate in that. Um, but I just see like they had a tire, entirely different experience because they went straight from, you know, the uniform to the regular civilian world. Uh, A lot of them didn't go on and get uh, higher academic credentials. Some of it wasn't needed. But when you destroy somebody professionally and you walk away uh, and have no responsibility and then talk about that you you were the only one that would hold them accountable, like you're so self-righteous. And that's how these weak leaders would get promoted is they're not strong. They're not capable, so they just virtue signal by throwing other people in the bus. I would never do that. Same thing that when you read the book, A Few Bad Men, and you pay particular attention to what Colonel then at the time, Colonel John Nicholson said under oath and how he was caught dead to right in a Perry Mason moment and busted, pinned down by the defense attorneys, and he admitted that he was wrong and he didn't read what you know, was written right in front of him. And that if he had known that, which he had the information, and if he had known and, and read what he was given, that he would have, in his own words, taken a knee and sipped water, which is a military colloquialism is, you know, he wouldn't have taken the action. He did. He just chilled out. Um, He said he would have given us the benefit of the doubt, but he didn't. And what did he do after he was busted in court? Well, and, in 2012, he invites Carlotta Gall, who is a reporter. She still is, unfortunately, uh, with the New York Times. She comes into his office in the Pentagon. This was when he's promoted uh, two-star general. And he, just like Petraeus, these guys, they, they can't ha- help but be surrounded by these women who are writing books. And he's he continues to assign blame and fault to me and our command— The Marines over there, even after he was, he was dead busted and admits that he was wrong and that we didn't do anything. 2014, this book, The Wrong Enemy, gets published by Carlotta Gall, and he continues to slander us. in sentence after sentence in that book. And, you know, he went on to get promoted all the way to four-star general. And, uh, you know, now he's with his new wife over in Abu Dhabi working for Lockheed Martin. It's a disgrace in America. Your return on this investment, a lot of Americans that hope for a nice retirement and that their finances that are invested will give them that nice cushion and quality of life and they can travel. And that's going to end if we have weak leaders and you don't care about it. If you have these guys that are profiteering and when you work for Lockheed Martin – I mean, This guy is an infantry officer, just like General Mattis, just like General Dunford, who was the last chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who lied and said that there was no adverse administrative or judicial action taken against any of the MARSOC-7. Well, I was one of the MARSOC-7. And four years after General Dunford, who said that when he was a command on the Marine Corps, and then later we got, became promoted and moved up to become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but he said that to five members of Congress to include members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. And guess what? In 2019, the Department of the Navy said remove this adverse material out of Major Galvin's record. But he sent official correspondence, which I have right here on my desk, stating that there was no adverse administrative or judicial action taken. So he lied to Congress. That's a felony. That's can lead to imprisonment, but he gets away with it. Guess where he's working? That's right. He's also working with Lockheed Martin as a board member. Yeah. And uh, you know, he is, you know, when you think Lockheed Martin, just like the current Secretary of Defense, you know, he's Dunford, or the current Secretary of Defense right now, Lloyd Austin is the same thing like last Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, same thing as General Mattis, same thing as General Nicholson, same thing as uh, General Kearney, they're all infantry officers. That's what they started at. That's what I was, and I'm not working at Lockheed Martin because I don't have this high-tech aerospace. I'm not into radars and all this sophisticated. Nor are they. Don't they don't have advanced degrees in engineering and you know artificial intelligence? They're not artificial intelligence scientists. The reason that they're there is because they have the access, the placement, the influence. And they'll do anything to sell their country out, just like General Mattis did with Theranos, like I described. And Americans listened to him testify to Congress a year and a half ago about Theranos and lied through his teeth, and they didn't do anything about it. <clears throat> so, America, these war pimps are the ones that are pushing all the different weapon systems on Capitol Hill that are desperately needed when we go to war. When, not if, we will be at war soon with the People's Republic of China. I, I hope we don't, God forbid, go to war, because that'll mean countless Americans will die, not just be wounded, but will die. And this will be a horrible thing for America and the world and our way of life. And the only way to deter it is to have strength. And our, our military in America is not perceived
2: by our adversaries as strong right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate, you know, this entire sort of uh, cycle that happens. Um, and, and and like you said, you know, we th- this is all funded by the taxpayers. Um, you know, are, are we getting a good return on our investment? Uh, you know, probably not. And then guys like yourself, Marsoc3, and, and you know, different uh, folks, service-wide are really getting a raw deal where, you know, these men and women, you know, decided to do something honorable and serve their country and then, uh, you know, often in combat, in adverse uh, situations, and then they get uh, betrayed by, you know, some of these uh general officers who most of them never seen combat. You know, they are, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're politicians, uh, in a uniform. And, um, and it's, it's really, uh, you know, I I think you said the conviction rate is like 99% or something crazy like that or 98%. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, that's yeah, it's crazy. And it's like, you know, in in the, in the instance of the Marsac Three, it's like all these charges are, are are thrown at them, and then they're isolated from their command. So like they, it it just puts them in such a bad position. You know, their their pay is docked. You know, they're doing you know sort of odd jobs around the base. Like it's just it's uh, it's such a demoralizing thing to deal with. On top of all the issues, like if you just zoom out from that particular thing, all these other issues that we're dealing with, with tension and, and the current state of the world that's changing, um, like it's like all these things are people who are aware of this, it's making them not want to serve. And you know, I've interviewed several uh, different guys across different services, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, who have sons and daughters and they said like I, I like if they if they wanted to serve you know i would support them but i wouldn't recommend that they do it and like and that's really a problem so um you know they're, they're things are bleak and and some of it is you know the unknown like we don't know how some of these things are going to play out uh, moving forward um you know hopefully I mean, I know for a fact that there are good men and women serving uh, in the government and the security services, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, these good, competent professionals can sort of navigate us, you know, through this uh, this changing uh, world.
3: Yes, one of the things that <clears throat> I'd like to kind of mention here at the end is uh that last scene, and it may sound corny, but it's something I want your listeners to to leave with. So the book I wrote, A Few Bad Men, similar to a – in some ways, although it's very different. But there was another nonfiction story called A Few Good Men, and that's one of the old Marines' slogans. We used to have uh, a few good men. Now that's not what we're really looking for, so they don't say that anymore, unfortunately. But that situation that went on down at Guantanamo Bay was actually a factual story. And at the end of the movie, these two young enlisted Marines, Private First Class Loudon Downey and Lance Corporal Harold Dawson, they were convicted because, you know, they gagged this guy, you know, PFC William Santiago, which the whole story was about. And at the very end, You know, the young private first class asks his senior Lance Corporal there, uh, Dawson, he said, what does this mean? He said, you know, we should have stood up for Santiago. We had a right. We, we, We had an obligation to stand up for Santiago. And even though that their leaders ordered them to do this code red, they had an obligation to do the right, morally, ethically correct thing. And they didn't, and they held those young enlisted Marines accountable. So my thing to you, John, and your listeners is this is not a democracy in America. We have a Republic, it's a democratic process and a Republic the people, us, the citizens have the power. That's what the system is supposed to be set up to do. I want your listeners to understand that we have that power. We have to use that power. We have to go to the ballot box and we have to vote people out because they haven't done their job. And why are two Marine gunnery sergeants, a Navy chief petty officer, being dragged into court and tried and going through this abusive process for four years that's destroyed their families and their finances for defending themselves and providing the Immediate trauma care that they needed. And then in like our case, we defended ourselves And these generals repeatedly, multiple ones continually over years and years and years, even after we were acquitted, lied to reporters who wrote books, lied to the press, went to army bases and lied to scores of young military leaders. And they got away with this in our Elected officials don't do anything. So I leave that with your listeners that there's a few bad men out there. We, the people, have the power in this republic to change this and to not tolerate this and to vote those scumbags out of office that have failed. There's people on the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, and I haven't even gotten in to the second case that I went into court In Okinawa, Japan, on a separate deployment later to Afghanistan, where I was stopping my boss from dropping a 500-pound bomb, and he did it anyway, 34 meters away from his own troops, which one of them later committed suicide because he got shook. You can't drop this thing within 180 meters. And then the maniac commander dropped two other—those Harriers went off station for gas— And he fires two surface-fired rockets, 675-pound warheads each, 34 meters away from these guys. Can't drop those within 180 meters. And later he says to me, and I take a polygraph on this too, that, Fred, I'm willing to sacrifice the lives of these Marines. And he repeats that as confirmed in my polygraph. I stand up, say, you know, because— I, in every military officer, one thing, John, my enlisted oath differed than my officer oath. And that's the case with everyone in the military. Enlisted oath ends that you will obey the orders of the president of the United States and the officers appointed over you. The officer oath does not have that. It's only to the constitution. And that's what I had a right to defend. And when, I'm, when I receive an unlawful order, I have a duty to disobey and I need those military leaders to have that backbone and show some spine, not be a jellyfish. And when you see things that are immoral and unethical and illegal, that you put your hand up and say, stop, but we're not doing that. There's not a single leader right now. And we have all these things that are destroying our military. That's saying, stop, we are just being a pump and no filter whatsoever. And this is what I need. Those Americans not talking about our military right now, I'm talking about the Americans to understand that just like in the movie, a few good men, we're supposed to stand up for these Marines, these service members. That's what we're supposed to do. Don't let this be a sequel, like a few good men and where you sit back and just go along or participate in something unethical because somebody above you ordered you to do something wrong and you went along with it. That's, That has consequences. You cannot compromise your conscience without consequences. And America, we, the people, have the power. And every election from here on out, get rid of these incumbents. They have not, they failed us. They have not done their jobs. And they don't, they're not worthy. And that will send a signal that, hey, they're right. This is a republic. And if I don't do what the people, not the financiers, I, I realize the cost it it takes to get people in office and that's why it's so corrupt. But the people need to have the power. You need to get them out of office. So, but, uh, I appreciate your time to, and just considering me to, uh, do this interview. I really appreciate it, John.
2: No, I appreciate you coming on here. You know, um, you know, everything you said is uh, something that Americans really need to think long and hard about. And, um, uh, it's a great book, a uh, few bad men. I recommend that my audience get a copy of it. Um, it's in all formats, hardcover, digital audio. Um, so yeah, get a copy of it, uh, learn about the details of this. And then, you know, when you're done with this, look up some of these other cases, you know, you know look up the, the Marsoc three and, and just get a better understanding of, uh, you know what's happening to uh, some of our servicemen and women, and and uh, and again, you know, Fred, I want to thank you for coming on here. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I want to thank you for your service as well. Uh, thank you for your service, and thank you for having me as your guest. Again,
3: I appreciate it very much, John.